0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Happening now. Russians risk arrest to mourn the death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. His widow is now publicly accusing the Kremlin of hiding Navalny's body to cover up his killing. We'll have a live report from Moscow. Also tonight, Donald Trump's refusal to criticize Vladimir Putin over Navalny's death is giving Nikki Haley new ammunition against the GOP frontrunner, portraying Trump, and I'm quoting her now as being weak in the knees when it comes to the Russian leader. The attacks intensifying just ahead of the Trump-Haley showdown in South Carolina and Russia advances in Ukraine after capturing an Eastern town at a vulnerable moment with USAID in limbo. We're getting new indications of where Russian forces may be planning to strike next. Welcome to our viewers here in the United States and around the world. I'm Wolf Blitzer, you're in the Situation Room. We begin with grief, anger and unanswered questions surrounding the death of jailed Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Three days after Navalny's death was announced, his family says authorities won't release his body for another two weeks. CNN's chief global affairs correspondent, Matthew Chance, is joining us live from Moscow right now. Matthew, tell us more about the investigation and the reaction to Navalny's death.
2: Well, that investigation, Wolf, according to the Kremlin, is underway and it's continuing, but it hasn't reached any conclusions yet about the cause of Alexei Navalny's death. Meanwhile, many ordinary Russians are defying the sort of crackdown on dissent here. They're so shocked about the death of this most prominent uh, Kremlin critic that they're defying that crackdown and turning out to pay their last respects. Despite the risks... Russians are publicly grieving at Alexei Navalny's death. In Moscow, a steady stream of mourners laying flowers for the late opposition leader. Across Russia, rights activists say hundreds have been detained for just this. My hero has died, this man told us. I grew up watching and learning from him, so it feels like a personal loss, he says. This woman tells us she desperately wants Russia to change, but now we're at a dead end, she says, with sorrow, grief and pain. Do you feel that pain more than Navalny's own family. And his widow, Yulia, here meeting outraged European leaders, is vowing to expose what she says are her husband's killers and to assume his opposition mantle.
3: I will continue Alexei Navalny's work. I will keep fighting
4: for our country and I encourage you to stand by my side. To share not only grief and the endless pain that has enveloped us and does not let go. I'm asking you to share my rage, anger, hatred for
5: those who dared to kill our future.
2: Meanwhile, the Russian president, expected to be re-elected next month, has yet to mention the unexplained death of his fiercest critic. The Kremlin refusing to comment while it says investigations are underway. Even recovering Navalny's remains in Russia is proving Painstaking. His elderly mother, Ludmilla, who's travelled nearly 2,000 miles to the remote Arctic region where he died in prison, has been told, according to Navalny's spokeswoman, that post mortem tests mean the body won't be released for at least another two weeks. Plenty of time, say Navalny supporters, deeply suspicious of the Kremlin for the real cause of this sudden tragic death to be hidden. Well, Wolf, in yet another sign of defiance, tens of thousands of Russians have now signed a very public petition calling on the authorities to immediately hand back the body or hand over the body of Alexei Navalny to his family uh, so that uh, he can be buried. But at the moment, the, the Kremlin seems unmoved uh, by uh, this, this kind of pressure coming from the, the Russian public. Back to you.
1: Matthew Chance in Moscow for us. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, now to Russia's war against Ukraine. Kremlin forces making their first major advance in months, capturing a key eastern town that had become one of the most fiercely contested battlegrounds. CNN senior international correspondent Fred Pleitkin is following all these developments. He's joining us live from Berlin right now. Fred, how big of a blow is this to Ukraine?
6: Well, it's a huge blow to the Ukrainians because this town that you're talking about, Avdivka, in the east of the country was actually held by the Ukrainians uh, since 2014. It was one of the best fortified towns that the Ukrainians had. And now the Russians have managed to take that town. And the Ukrainians will also fear that this could indicate that the Russians are going to press in other areas as well. The Ukrainians say that there are certain other areas in the front lines where the Russians are already gaining the upper hand because they simply have overwhelming firepower and the Ukrainians don't have enough ammunition. Now the Ukrainian President, Volodymyr Zelensky, he visited one of those areas where the Ukrainians believe the Russians could start another major push soon. And certainly there as well, the Ukrainians voiced their concern about a lack of military aid that's making it difficult for them on the front line, certainly as far as Avdivka is concerned. I was actually in that area about two to three weeks ago, and the Ukrainians are already there telling us they were holding up a lot of the Russian assaults. They said the Russians had massive casualties in that area as they were trying to move forward, but it was the lack of manpower and especially the lack of firepower that made it so difficult for the Ukrainians to stay in the game, and now, obviously, they've had to leave that area, Wolf.
1: Is this the result uh, of the stalled USA to Ukraine, Fred?
6: Well, it certainly looks like in in part it very well could be. It was quite interesting because I did have the chance to communicate with one of the soldiers who was fighting there on the front line in Avdivka and then had to leave that area. And that soldier said that a lack of firepower, a lack of artillery shells was definitely one of the main causes why the Ukrainians were not able to hold the Russians up. They said, look... Even if we had an okay amount, as he put it, uh, they would have been able to stop the Russians, but they simply didn't have that. Now, of course, that's in part due to lack of aid from the United States, but also some European countries that have pledged artillery shells to the Ukrainians have not come uh, through so far to the extent that the Ukrainians would have liked. At the same time, the Ukrainians say, in the long run, if U.S. aid does not come through, it will have devastating effects for them on the battlefield. Uh, artillery ammunition of course one thing but all sorts of other ammunitions also a big problem for the ukrainians as well as gear of course one of the things that we've highlighted is that for instance the bradley infantry fighting vehicle for the ukrainians is one of the main weapons that's helping them on the ground if spare parts for that dry up ammunition for that as well it's going to be a big problem for the ukrainians not just on the eastern front but on the southern front as well Wolf
1: certainly will be fred pleitkin reporting for us so uh, thank you very much fred uh, president biden meanwhile is watching All these events unfold in Russia and Ukraine and drawing a direct connection to the standoff over new U.S. aid to Ukraine. Let's go to CNN senior White House correspondent, Arlette Signs. Arlette, how are the president and his administration responding to these important developments?
4: Well, if President Biden once again today expressed disbelief that Republicans have yet to pass additional aid for Ukraine at a critical time in their battle against Russia. This really took on heightened significance over the weekend after the death of Alexei Navalny in that Russian pri- prison. President Biden directly blaming Putin and his thugs and said that they would be considering additional actions they could take. He told reporters today that they could uh, implement some new sanctions against Russia. But the big question is, even as the president had previously warned of devastating consequences if Navalny were to die in prison. Uh, It's unclear what kind of bite any further actions would have, uh, sanctions would have, after there had already been rounds and rounds of sanctions after Russia had invaded Ukraine. But the president is also using this moment to really to ramp up the pressure on House Republicans to get on board with additional aid for Ukraine. Today, uh, he told reporters that he was simply shocked that they haven't done so, so far. Take a listen. Mr. President, would you go as far as to say that Alexei Navalny's blood is on the hands
3: of House Republicans right now?
7: Well, I would use that term. They're making a big mistake not Mm responding. Look, the way they're walking away from the threat of Russia, the way
8: they're walking away from NATO, the way they're walking away from meeting our obligations
4: is just shocking. This comes on the heels of President Biden blasting House Republicans and lawmakers for leaving for a two-week break. Now, this all comes as the administration has really spent months warning of the potential impacts of not passing aid for Ukraine, saying that those soldiers on the battlefield would be significantly uh, debilitated if they did not have that further military assistance. Now, over the weekend, President Biden jumped on the phone with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, and the White House said that in that phone call, he directly tied the Ukrainian withdrawal from that key town that Fred talked about, he directly tied that to Congress's inability to pass this military assistance. The president also said he could not rule out the possibility that other towns could potentially fall as well uh, as these soldiers are facing ammunition shortages. But the president, even as he is pressing lawmakers to act, he's running up against the political reality right now. The House Republicans and House Speaker Mike Johnson so far have shown no signs of budging when it comes to bringing this aid for Ukraine. Praying up for a vote.
1: Arlette Signs reporting from the White House for us. Arlette, thank you very much. Up next, Donald Trump finally breaks his silence on Navalny's death, but he's not condemning Vladimir Putin. We're going to tell you who he's attacking instead. That's coming up right after a quick break. Tonight, Donald Trump is finally speaking out about Alexei Navalny. Writing the the Russian opposition leader's death has made him more aware of what he calls the path of destruction in the United States, citing his dozens of criminal charges, his remaining rival of the GOP primary race, and Nikki Haley now weighing in, seeing as Kristen Holmes is following all these developments for us. Kristen, take us through what Trump is saying and how Nikki Haley is responding.
3: Well, I'm not sure we can even call it speaking out because instead of condemning Putin or condemning the death of Putin's top critic, Lexi Navalny, he is implying that the situation with his various legal cases is somehow similar to the death of Alexei Navalny. And this is what he posted on Truth Social. He said, The sudden death of Alexei Navalny has made me more and more aware of what is happening in our country. We are a nation in decline, a failing nation now. Of course, as we have reported multiple times, Donald Trump has sought to link all of his various cases, even if they are not linked at all, that means criminal, civil, and various jurisdictions, some are state, some are federal, to say that they are all because Joe Biden, Democrat president, does not want him to be the next president. Again, there's no evidence that any of these cases are linked, but he seeks to call himself a political prisoner, essentially, that he is being politically persecuted in this case. Now, his lone GOP rival, Nikki Haley, is seizing on these comments, Take a listen i don't know why he keeps getting weak in the knees when it comes to russia but i'll tell you what russia is not getting weak in the knees because what we're seeing is now they're starting to put soldiers around the baltic countries and- Now, Wolf, it's unclear if these kind of jabs at Donald Trump are going to work at all. Keep in mind, the next primary up is this weekend. It is South Carolina. And Donald Trump, by all polling that we've seen, is leading by double digits. He's actually only been in the state one time since New Hampshire. His team is that confident that he's going to take that primary, and they are that confident that he's going to eventually be the Republican nominee. Wolf.
1: Kristen Holmes reporting for us, thank you very much. Uh, Joining us now, Republican strategist, Shermichael Singleton, and Democratic strategist, Maria Cardona. She's a CNN political commentator as well. Shermichael, let me start with you. Trump is baselessly claiming he's being politically persecuted, like Navalny won't condemn Putin for his death, What's your reaction?
9: Well, I I reached out to some Republican activists at the base level in South Carolina with the primary coming up, and I wanted to get their opinions on what they're hearing uh, from likely GOP voters. And what one of the individuals told me is that they view Donald Trump's legal issues as being persecuted politically. The the reality is that they see a 77-year-old former president likely to spend the rest of his life in prison if he's found guilty on any number of these particular charges. And so the message uh, from Trump that I am a Novani here, just like he was to Putin, I am to Biden, that has resonance with many of his voters. They see him through that lens. But I will add, politically speaking, uh, Wolf, the U.S.'s resolve is being tested geopolitically on a number of fronts right now. And regardless of the politics here, I think most Americans, 77%, want to support Ukraine. Many Americans want to continue uh, to support Israel. We need to figure out uh, the best approach and strategy moving forward to secure our standing in the world. You look at China and their BRIC system uh, attempting to push away the dollar, internationally speaking. And so I think Americans want a leader that will best position the country moving forward for generations to come. And I think the president should speak, former
1: president should speak to those things versus purely politics. Important point. Maria, uh, what is the lack of a direct response to Navalny's death from, from Trump and his comments on NATO, for that matter, tell you about how he would approach Russia down the road?
10: You know, it's interesting that Nikki Haley says that Donald Trump is weak in the knees. He's not just weak in the knees, Wolf. He admires Putin, which is one of the reasons why he has not been able to denounce uh, Putin for his murderous act. And in fact, let's remember when there was the court hearing about presidential immunity, Trump's legal team was asked by a judge whether the president would have immunity if he had SEAL Team 6 go out and, and have his political opponent Murdered essentially, and his team said yes, that he would have immunity. So that's exactly what Vladimir Putin has done with immunity. And so I think that Donald Trump looks at that and says, I'm not only not going to say anything, I kind of admire the guy for what he's able to do. Let's remember that Donald Trump himself has said he's going to be a dictator on day one. We know he has dictator like not just desires, but he actually tried to overturn a fair and free election on January 6th. So to me, it is bone chilling, it is jaw dropping, it should not be surprising, but it should be yet another warning that Donald Trump and the White House will be an existential threat to the democracy and to the future of this country.
1: You know, Sure, Michael, what's your reaction to the uh, uh, increasing intensity of Nikki Haley's condemnation of Trump on all these positions right now? And why aren't we hearing more along those lines from other republicans
9: i mean to to answer the first part of the question wolf i think she recognizes that south carolina is a make it or break it for for her Uh, in my personal opinion as a strategist i think the republican primary was over after new hampshire Uh, at this point uh, nikki haley in the eyes of many republicans uh, who support and back uh, the former president she's become a nuisance candidate Uh, there is a serious uh, percent of dislike uh, among many voters when you ask them What do you think about her? In the past, they would say, oh, she's bright. She's the future. She will have an opportunity in 2028. I'm not certain uh, that those uh, appeals, uh, that sentimentality still remains for her. And and I would caution uh, the former governor to be very careful if she is looking four years into the future. Uh, Now, to answer the the, the latter part, uh, Wolf, I think that many Republican voters, for the most part, look at Donald Trump as being the individual who brings what they believe is their truth uh, to mainstream politics. He's, brought a, he's been a wrecking ball, if you will, to the political establishment. Whether we agree with the veracity of his claims or not, those of us in Washington, there are many Americans, 74 million of them who voted for him do believe that to be the case. They view those of us on the East Coast as individuals who look down upon them. Uh, they view themselves as being a part of the losers in this game of winners and losers as continues to expand And so I think that's what Donald Trump speaks to, and I think that's why we're seeing his prominence remain.
1: You know, Maria, what do you make of uh, Trump unveiling a new uh, pair of sneakers, (laughs) Trump-related sneaker, gold sneakers, $400 a pair uh, that he's gonna use, uh, obviously, to pay legal bills or whatever?
10: Well, he certainly needs it because we know that he is in a hole by like hundreds of millions of dollars and the RNC is not really in a position to continue to pay his legal bills. But to me, it shows both desperation as well as the gaudy nature of what he represents. Now, as kind of a shoe diva myself, when I looked at this, I said, this is yet another lawsuit in the making, Wolf. Christian Louboutin, who is a hugely famous top line designer of women's shoes, has a very his his shoes famously have a red sole. And he has been in some lawsuits before where the court at the European Union, the court in India have said this red sole is a trademark of this shoe designer Christian Louboutin. it would be really ironic for this thing that Donald Trump did in order to make money to pay his lawsuits to accrue yet another additional lawsuit that he's going to have to make money on.
1: Yeah, his, his website says they're already sold out. Too on. much gold <laughs> for me. Let, let's see what happens. All right, guys, thank you very, very much, Maria Cardona, Sir Michael Singleton. Coming up, President Biden slams Congress for leaving town without approving a multi-million-dollar foreign aid package. We'll discuss the prospects of new aid ever being passed with a key member of the House Intelligence Committee, stand by. You're in the situation.
0: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
11: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent.
1: Tonight, House Speaker Mike Johnson is facing growing criticism over his lack of action on new USA to Ukraine, the pressure clearly intensifying after the death of leading Putin critic Alexei Navalny and a significant new Ukrainian loss on the battlefield. Let's get an update right now from CNN's Melanie Zanona. She's joining us from Capitol Hill. So, Melanie, where you are, where do things stand?
13: Well, the fate of Ukraine aid is really in the hands of Speaker Mike Johnson right now, but he has yet to reveal what he plans to do as his party remains fiercely divided over this issue. Remember, Speaker Mike Johnson is still very new to this job. He has very little experience on the international stage. We're told that he's never even visited Ukraine as part of a congressional delegation or a formal member trip. And he's also dealing with this right flank who is deeply opposed to additional Ukraine aid and have even threatened his speakership over the issue. But at the same time, there is a healthy contingent of House Republicans who do support additional money for Ukraine. And in private meetings, we're told that Speaker Mike Johnson has said that he understands the gravity of the situation and that he does want to address the issue in some way. But In the meantime, the pressure and criticism is really intensifying for Johnson, especially after the developments this weekend that you mentioned. Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader, put out a statement just yesterday. I want to read you part of what he said. He said, Navalny's tragic death now makes it even more urgent for House Speaker Johnson to pass the National Security Supplemental. This bipartisan bill currently sits at the feet of Speaker Johnson, and Putin is watching. That is a reference to the $95 billion aid package that the Senate passed earlier this month, but so far, Johnson has refused to put that bill to a floor vote. Now, there is some discussion amongst the House GOP leadership about potentially changing the package to maybe pair back some of the Ukraine aid to either offset it or restructure it as a loan, as former Speaker Donald Trump has called for. But as of right now, Wolf, no decisions have been made. And Congress is actually on recess, not just not returning until next week. And before they left, Johnson told members that there's no rush to address this issue, a sentiment that is clearly not shared by the international community. Well,
1: certainly isn't. Melanie is known up on Capitol Hill. Thank you. Let's get some more on all these developments. Uh, joining us now, a key House Democrat, Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy. He's a member of the House Intelligence Committee. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. With this U.S. aid clearly stalled right now at a critical moment, Ukraine just suffered its biggest battlefield defeat in nearly a year. Are Trump and far-right House Republicans to blame?
8: Yes. I think that right now what we're seeing is Trump railing against this Ukraine bill, the same way that he did with the border security bill that was about to be passed out of the Senate. And I think that what we're seeing is that on the battlefield, Ukrainians are starting to um, have to ration ammunition to the point where on any given day, the Russians are firing upwards of 10,000 shells at the Ukrainians per day, while the Ukrainians can only fire about 2,000 per day. So that's a five to one advantage, which means very
1: serious consequences
8: on the battlefield.
1: Given just how critical this U.S. military aid to Ukraine is, Congressman, are there compromises that Democrats can now make with House Republicans to get to an agreement? Sure. I think a bipartisan approach is always
8: favorable. And I think that uh, Speaker Johnson should reach back out to Hakeem Jeffries if he wishes in order to create this bipartisan approach. I know that Hakeem Jeffries very much wants that. But not doing anything, which is what's happening right now, is not an option. And one of the people that's watching this very closely is Xi Jinping in China. He's watching this legislative process just as closely as Vladimir Putin. And as Secretary Mike Pompeo testified before our committee the other day, the China Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, we can't be tough on China and then weak in support of Ukraine. And if we are, it makes war over Taiwan more likely. And so we have to show strength. We've got to get this bill passed right now.
1: As you know, several foreign leaders voiced concerns, serious concerns, to several of your colleagues at that Munich security conference. Politico reported that Ukrainian officials told U.S. senators about a soldier actually scrolling on his phone in the battlefield for signs the House would approve this U.S. military aid. How does the U.S. look on the world stage right now? Um, We don't
8: look good right now, Wolf, and I think that Um, At this point, we need to look strong. Are we capable of doing this correctly in the House? Absolutely. But now we've got to hustle and we've got to do it as soon as we come back. Because remember, it's one thing to get the aid passed. It's another to then get the aid onto the battlefield where it will make a difference. And so our Pentagon planners uh, need some time to do that. But we've got to hustle in the House.
1: Yes, uh, you certainly do. President Biden says he's weighing more sanctions on Russia right now for the death of Alexei Navalny. What consequences, Congressman, do you think the Biden administration should impose on Putin for Navalny's death?
8: Well, at this point, I think that we have to look at all options on the table. One thing that we haven't seriously looked at is, of course, the reserves that the Russians have in the West, roughly $300 billion of frozen reserves. And I understand that there are concerns uh, about going after those reserves. But at this point, I think we have to open the door because what is happening with regard to Putin's brutality in Ukraine, along with the impunity with which he is assassinating opponents like Navalny and others, uh, can't be countenanced. We have to take uh, more actions to make it even more costly for Putin to engage in this type of activity.
1: What does it say, Congressman, that former President Trump has not condemned Russia for Navalny's death?
8: It doesn't speak well about the former president. And I think that that is all you need to know about why he's just unfit to be the president again. Um, I think Nikki Haley said that he has been weak in the knees every time that he's with Vladimir Putin. And uh, we need somebody who's strong, someone like Joe Biden, obviously, uh, who has been um, handling this situation as well as I think we can. But obviously, in Congress, we need to step up to the plate as well.
1: Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, thanks uh, as usual for joining us. Thank you, Wolf. Coming up, the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States joins me with reaction to Russia's major new victory out there on the battlefield. That's coming up in the next hour of the Situation Room. But first, Donald Trump vowing to appeal the $355 million civil fraud verdict against him. A live report on what the former president needs to do to put that ruling on hold. Stay with us. Another appeal looms for former President Trump and his legal team after a New York judge on Friday ordered Trump to pay $355 million for fraudulently inflating the values of his properties. CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez is joining us right now. He's got an update. He's got the latest. Evan, what are you learning?
14: well wolf we don't know when the the former president is planning to file an appeal he's got 30 days uh to uh, to notify the court that he is uh filing that appeal but the problem here is that uh, he's gonna have to come up with some money uh or uh, some property or something to to have a bond to secure that fund those funds uh we're talking obviously uh 355 million dollars in this uh judgment there's also another uh, recent civil case that he lost uh, in the E. Jean Carroll case. Uh, in the, similarly, uh, he hasn't appealed that one. So we don't know, uh, he's about 20 days into, into that case where he's supposed to appeal. So the, the question remains, you know, when are we going to see these appeals and really, does the former president have the kind of assets, the, the money, uh, he said in a, uh, in a deposition last year that he had about $400 million in cash or, or that was liquid that he could have access to. It's unclear if that is accurate, Wolf, but uh, he's going to have to start showing up, uh, showing either some cash or uh, some of his assets to be able to secure a bond, again, to cover the cost of these uh, legal losses that he keeps incurring. Wolf? Evan Perazak, thanks very
1: much for that update. I want to bring in CNN senior law enforcement analyst Andrew McCabe and CNN legal analyst Norm Eisen. Uh, Norm, let me start with you. How do you think Trump is likely to fare on this appeal?
15: Poorly, Wolf. Uh, The judge backed up his legal findings of fraud by the Trump Organization, Mr. Trump and others with a mountain of evidence and very sound legal reasoning. Wolf, you can't say your home is about 30,000 square feet when it's about 10,000 square feet. And the same kind of disparities are found on Trump's uh, Seven Springs estate, Mar-a-Lago, 40 Wall Street, and on and on. The judge dropped the most controversial and problematic uh, finding uh, on uh, his final order, and that was the corporate death penalty, yanking the certificates of doing business in New York. What's left is bulletproof. Trump is going to lose this appeal, very likely.
1: We will find out very, very soon. Andrew McCabe, Trump is attacking the judge and the attorney general uh, on, socia- on social media, and he's writing this. And Let me put it up on the screen. My financial statements were understated, not overstated. This all fit the fake narrative of the corrupt and many times overturned judge, in quotes, and the radical left, Soros-backed, slob of an attorney general. What do you think? Is it a good idea to launch these sorts of attacks when you're asking the court to review the decision?
16: Well, Wolf, well, I think for any normal litigant, the answer is a resounding no. It's a it's a terrible idea to attack the judge uh Personally, it's a terrible idea to attack the attorney general. Personally, you should keep your your statements limited, if at if any at all, and keep them directed in, uh, you know, consistent with your legal arguments. But this is not a normal litigant, and we have to remember that what you're seeing on social media—that's the political side of. Uh, Donald Trump strategy. He knows how to use these opportunities, even staggering losses and massive financial liability. He knows how to use those things as an advantage in his political campaign to rally his supporters, to maybe you know, uh, uh, convince people to make donations to the campaign. So he's absolutely going to market these things in a way that is completely divorced from reality. The Comments you made and you reiterated in that posting are absolutely contradicted by the evidence at this trial, but most people won't look that far.
1: Norm, while I have you, I wanna turn to the Georgia election subversion case uh, that we're all following, obviously, as well. A judge is now deciding whether to remove District Attorney Fannie Willis from the case after two remarkable days of testimony about her relationship with Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade. What do you expect to happen here?
15: WOLF, under the law of Georgia disqualification, it's extremely unlikely that the DA will be removed. You only get disqualification in Georgia if you have some kind of a conflict, for example, if the DA uh, were having a relationship with one of the witnesses in the case, so the evidence is distorted, or some kind of forensic misconduct, making up evidence. We don't have either one of those here. And the judge's one concern, which is the financial issues, was powerfully answered by Willis when she said, we went Dutch. So I don't expect disqualification.
1: Andrew, if Fannie Willis is allowed to remain on the case, how much potential damage with the jury pool could that public testimony have uh, have had?
16: I think that's a really tough thing to estimate at this point, Wolf. While I agree with Norm's legal analysis, I do think that there's a legitimate question hanging over Fawnie Willis now, and that question is, even if she is allowed to continue with this case, would it be a good idea for her to recuse herself from the case and put it in the hands of someone who hasn't had to testify about their personal relationship, about the cash they keep in their house? the the act of having to defend herself through this process has created a bit of a spectacle around she and Mr. Wade, and it's certainly one that potential jurors could have come in contact with and which could create negative impressions in their mind of Fonnie Willis and, and uh, to a larger extent, her prosecutorial team. So, She's got a tough decision to make, I think, even if she's allowed to remain on the case.
1: Andrew McCabe and Norm Eisen, to both of you, thank you very, very much. Coming up, my interview with an American doctor who recently returned from treating patients in Gaza. We'll be right back. As Israel vows to push forward with military operations in southern Gaza, we're getting new insight into the suffering of Palestinian civilians and the terrible toll the war is taking on hospitals in the region. Dr. Irfan Galeri writes a new op-ed for the Los Angeles Times and he says this, I have worked in other war zones, but what I witnessed during the next 10 days in Gaza was not war, it was annihilation, end quote. Dr. Galeri is joining us right now. He recently returned from volunteering at the European Gaza Hospital in Khan Yunus. Dr. Galeria, thanks for all your important work. Thanks very much for joining us. Tell us what you saw when you were there. Uh, I know you were treating patients, including children.
17: Yeah, thank you, Wolf. Thank you for having me on your show. What I saw, I don't think I ever could have prepared to have seen. What, it was absolutely horrific and shocking. You know, it took me just a few minutes once I entered Rafa Gaza to recognize that what I had just passed through were what I felt were the gates of hell. What I saw was an unbelievable humanitarian crisis. I saw over 1 million people struggling to survive, trying to find shelter, food, drinking water. And what was haunting them throughout that evening and 24-7 were these drones. It sounds like a lawnmower or a weedwagger constantly hovering over them. And in the far distance, because we were in Rafa, most of the bombings were in Khan Yunus. In the far distance, we could hear bombs dropping. And that was my introduction
1: to Gaza. I know you have four children, but you treated a lot of children uh, at that European hospital. It's run by the European Union, very important hospital in Gaza. What was it like? Talk a little bit about that, because we see those pictures and and you shared with us some pictures as well. We'll show our viewers.
17: Sure. Yeah, I actually worked at the European Gaza Hospital for about eight or nine days. And I li- literally lived in it. And I slept on the floor of the holding area in my sleeping bag, because there was no other place for me to, me to stay. There wasn't even a little bed you could sleep in. No, there, there was not. It, to understand the hospital, let me uh, explain the hospitals for you to you'll understand the situation. As you approach the hospital, it is surrounded by tents, maybe 10,000 people. They're clustering around it hoping that it will serve as sort of a safe zone for them. And this humanity is literally spilling into the halls and corridors of the hospital. So anywhere you walk, the hallways are limited to a narrow single file passageway. And either side, you see blankets hanging from the ceiling to corner off and create little secluded private areas for families. This is a hospital designed to host maybe 300 patients, and they estimate there's over 1,000 patients. And the staff themselves live in the hospital. They, too, are homeless. Many of them actually uh, are living without their families because they, while they were working in their hosp- hospital, their homes were bombed, and they are now living alone.
1: It's, it's interesting because in, in your article, you write about how you stopped keeping track of how many orphans you were operating on. Talk a little bit about that.
17: Yeah, it was very difficult, and the story that I saw, the story that I heard over and over again, were that homes were being bombed, families were being destroyed, and as a father of four, it was very difficult to see these children being brought back to the operating room. In particular, they had no one by their side to provide them with any comfort. Oftentimes when we took care of these children, there was no pain medication to provide for them, to even give them comfort in that circumstance.
1: So it was very difficult to witness that. So what do they need most right now at these hospitals? And you were there, you spent some quality time there, very painful, very dangerous situation. I'm sure your family back here in Virginia must've been so nervous, worried about you. But what are the most important requirements that these people at the hospital need to save lives?
17: I think the most immediate or pressing need is a ceasefire. There needs to be a stop on assaults on healthcare facilities and healthcare providers, but specifically, the constant bombardments and attacks need to end. That's creating a massive humanitarian crisis. You know, Wolf. To really understand this, uh, you have to see what we saw as we were driving to Rafa. There were rows of trucks with humanitarian aids sitting parked on the sides of the roads, waiting to get in. You know, a very interesting and telling stat was. Before this war even happened, there were about 500 to 600 trucks, and of uh, aid trucks, that would enter the country. That's how dependent they were on aid. Following this war, oh, less than 100 trucks now enter on a daily
1: basis. Dr. Irfan Galeria, thanks for all your important work. Thanks very much Thank you. for joining us. We'll stay in close touch with you. I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thank you very much. And coming up, we'll have more on our top story, new fallout across the world right now, including right here in the United States to the death of the Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny. Stay with us, you're in the situation.
18: I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them on Be My Guest, the podcast. New friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Happening now, the protests in Russia and the global backlash against Vladimir Putin after the prison death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. The world now getting a closer look at the woman vowing to carry on Navalny's legacy, his grieving widow. Also tonight, a fiercely contested Ukrainian town falls to Russia, the most significant advance for Kremlin forces in months. I'll get reaction from the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States. She's joining us live this hour. Plus, sources now tell CNN that Vice President Kamala Harris is seeking a more assertive role in the 2024 campaign as she faces pressure from fellow democrats to shake up president biden's re-election bid welcome to our viewers here in the united states and around the world i'm wolf flitzer you're in the situation room Tonight, the widow of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny is angrily speaking out about his death and demanding answers as she vows to carry on her husband's work. Let's go to our chief global affairs correspondent, Matthew Chance. He's joining us live from Moscow right now. Matthew, how are Russians reacting to Navalny's death?
2: Uh, Wolf, they're reacting with shock, uh, with horror, with grief. I was at a a, a a makeshift memorial earlier tonight here in the capital, Moscow, and there weren't massive crowds, but there were was a constant trickle of twos and threes of people coming to pay their respects, to lay flowers, uh, to offer their condolences to the memory of Alexei Navalny, the country's most prominent Kremlin critic, who was pronounced dead on Friday at the remote penal colony in the Russian North, in the Arctic, uh, where we've been serving a 30-year uh, prison sentence. Uh, people run the risk here of being arrested or being detained if they come out and make public displays of protest and dissent like this. But nevertheless, thousands have done that across the country. Several hundred, 400, according to one rights monitoring group, have been detained as a result of their efforts just to pay their last respects to Alexei Navalny. And it's that mood of defiance that the widow of uh, Navalny, Yulia Navalnaya, um, touched on when she made an address on the social media platform X um, earlier today when she said she would uh, expose the people who she said killed her husband, Alexei Navalny. She said she would assume the mantle essentially of his opposition activities and continue his, his work. And and she appealed to the Russian people to back her in that effort. Take a listen to what Yulia Navalnya had to say. I
3: call upon
4: you to share not only grief and the endless pain that has enveloped us and does not let go. I'm asking you to share my rage, anger, hatred for those who dared to kill our future. I address you with Alexei's own words, in which I believe very much. It is not shameful to do little. It is shameful to do nothing. It is a shame to let yourself be intimidated.
2: Right, well, those strong words from Alexei Navalny's widow. The Kremlin, though, has been pretty tight-lipped, saying an investigation is underway into what caused the death of Alexei Navalny. But until the results of that have, have been forthcoming, it says it won't comment.
1: Matthew Chance reporting from Moscow for us. Matthew, thank you. Uh, Now let's get more on Navalny's widow and how she's carrying on her husband's fight against Vladimir Putin. CNN's Brian Todd is looking into this for us.
19: Brian, she has already begun clearly to publicly attack him. She has, Wolf, in addition to saying flat out that Vladimir Putin killed her husband. Yulia Navalny now says she will continue with her husband's cause. The key questions, can she do that effectively and can she survive? She's been through it all with him, from marching in the streets, getting arrested herself, to his final seconds of freedom three years ago, before he was taken into custody for the final time. But she has never been out front
3: until now. By killing Alexei, Putin killed half of me, half of my heart, and half of my soul. But I still have the other half, and it tells me that I have no right to give up. I will continue Alexei Navalny's cause.
19: 47-year-old Yulia Navalnaya, Alexei Navalny's widow. Can she now effectively lead Russia's opposition? Now that he is gone, I think the only person who could potentially carry on his legacy is his wife. She has long avoided the spotlight, supporting her husband's campaigns, but not leading rallies or making videos.
20: The fact that she has now affirmatively picked up the mantle is a remarkable turnaround from where she has stood for the last 15 years.
19: In the days since his death, she has recorded the video address, made public appearances, and met with world leaders in Europe.
4: She uh, was intimately involved in, uh, uh, in her husband's work. She was a very close Uh, partner with him. I think she understands what it was that Alexei Navalny did as well if not better than anyone.
19: She certainly knows the dangers of the job, enduring her husband being poisoned and almost killed in 2020 getting him flown out of the country for treatment, at his bedside during their 20th anniversary, and flying back with him to Russia, knowing that he would surely face arrest or worse. After police took him away in 2021, with the crowd chanting her name, she was defiant.
3: I am not afraid, and I call on you to not be afraid.
19: Shortly after that, at a court hearing, Alexei Navalny looked at his wife and drew the shape of a heart on the glass of the dock. When her husband died, she hadn't seen him in two years. His last message to the world was this valentine to her. Quote, I feel that you are with me every second. Her first post after his death, I love you. But after years of living in Europe, would she dare go back to Putin's Russia?
1: If she does this in
10: Russia,
8: she will have a high chance of ending up where her late husband ended up.
19: Others say Putin could come after her even if she stays abroad.
10: Look, I think if you are going to be a strong uh, voice of opposition to the Kremlin right now, you have to consider yourself uh, a target.
19: Yulia Navalny is already seemingly taking up some of her husband's calculations on how to pressure Vladimir Putin. According to the Washington Post, she called on European leaders to sanction hundreds of Russian oligarchs who support Putin's re-election and to help prevent Russia's elites from evading sanctions. Wolf?
1: All right, Brian Todd reporting for us. Thank you, Brian. Joining us now, the historian and Applebaum, a staff writer for The Atlantic. and thanks very much for, for joining us. Uh, how do you see Navalny's legacy moving forward right now? Is there any room for dissent at all in Russia?
18: Uh, there's very little room for dissent, but he was really somebody who spoke to the people who hope to someday dissent, who are learning how to dissent, and who aspire to dissent. Um, and that's, he, he he offered people a vision of what it's like to be brave. Here's what it looks like. I'm brave, now you be brave too. So while it's a very, very difficult moment in Russia right now, he offers a, a kind of vision of what a future Russia could look like, what a different Russia could be.
1: As you know, Navalny's widow says Russia is holding Navalny's body to to prevent evidence from emerging on how exactly he died. How do you see it?
18: I mean, it's very possible. Obviously, I don't have any insight into the, um, into the Russian funeral or, or forensic services, but you know, look, we know they've lied about him before. They tried to poison him twice. It's perfectly likely that they tried to poison him again, and they're hiding the body to prevent the evidence. I mean, it doesn't almost doesn't matter because one way or another, they clearly killed him. You know, they knew he was going to die. They knew he was in danger. He was ill. Um, they they wanted him out of the way, and I suspect they wanted him out of the way even before Russia's fake election in March. Um, you know, even behind bars. By existing, by being a voice of conscious and, you know, and, and bravery, he was a threat to Putin, who wants people to be cowardly.
1: He, he really feels, I'm sure uh, Putin feels emboldened right now going into that so-called election in Russia right now, given uh, that uh, Alexei Navalny is now gone, his chief opposition uh, in, in Russia right now, and the fact that his troops are making significant gains on the battlefield in Ukraine right now.
18: Uh, they're making some gains. Um, they they did they did take a city. Um, that, you know they still are, they lost uh, more soldiers taking that city than Russia than the Soviet Union lost in the entire war in Afghanistan. So they're still paying an enormous price. And you know Putin wouldn't be murdering his opposition. He wouldn't be arresting people who put flowers on public monuments. Uh, He wouldn't be arresting people who make mildly anti-war statements in restaurants and who are getting reported by sitting, by people at the the next door tables, if he was so confident. You know, the war has been disastrous for Putin. People on the inner circle know it. Uh, You know, uh, Russians are tired of it. Uh, You know, we don't really have any polling in Russia, but what we have shows whatever support for the war there, you know, is, is clearly going down. You know, his one hope, is keeping the United States divided and Europe divided long enough, you know, so you know, so that he can wear them out and he can and he can win the war that way.
1: Let's see if he can do that. Uh, while I have you, Anne, very quickly, I want to get your thoughts on Donald Trump's reaction to all of this, uh, saying he's being politically persecuted in the United States like Navalny was politically persecuted in Russia and he's refusing to condemn Russia for Navalny's death. What's what goes through your mind when you hear that?
18: I think it's a kind of sickness to imagine that the United States is like Russia, that you know we we, we murder our political opponents, um, lock them up with you know in distant Siberian prisons, and to pretend that somehow, you know, the legitimate justice of the United States is the same as that. It's a I mean it really shows where his mind is. He's a you know he 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 admires autocrats. He admires autocracy. You know, and and at the same time, he's unable to accept that the legitimate rule of law uh, has come after him.
1: Anne Applebaum, you're also a senior fellow at my alma mater, the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Thanks for coming in. Appreciate it very much. Coming up, Russia makes a major advance out there on the battlefield, taking a critical city in eastern Ukraine. We'll have a live report from the front lines. That's coming up. Plus. The Ukrainian ambassador to the United States is standing by live to join us right here in the Situation Room on how the fight over new U.S. aid to Ukraine is actually impacting the war right now. Tonight, Ukraine is warily watching Russia's next military moves after Kremlin forces, forces captured a key eastern town, the first major advance for Russia and Ukraine in months, CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is on the ground for us in Ukraine and a warning to our viewers. Some viewers may find images in this report disturbing.
21: A sight not seen for a while. A Russian flag going up over Ukraine. But Ukraine's withdrawal announced on Saturday from Avdivka means more than the loss of a town bitterly fought over since Russia first invaded a decade ago. It is perhaps the first sign a delay in USAID spells death and loss here. These images released of their last defences rushing into support, under fire from a resurgent Russia, who President Zelensky says sent seven Russian troops to die for every dead Ukrainian. This is what it was like in the basement, defending down to the last, treating the injured in the darkness, yet aware their options, their ammo, their chances were ebbing. Shelling endless, it spoiled my drink, this soldier complains. A commander clear Monday why this happened. We didn't have enough people, he says. We didn't have enough shells. We didn't have enough possibilities to throw them back. Russia's Ministry of Defence released images of their final onslaught on that coke plant and what, they claimed, were the casualties inflicted on Ukrainians as they tried to flee in the dark. Other images and reports emerged Monday in Ukraine Of the fate of their wounded, one of whom called home in his last moments. Allegations that, in the horrifying rubble here, both the wounded were left behind by Ukraine, but also shot dead in cold blood by Russian forces. Russian drone images of their spoils released, again displaying their odd pride over the rubble. Zelensky may have to get used to more of this. Putting on a brave face as he visited troops in the likely next Russian target, Kupiansk, just outside Kharkiv. Although there are different political sentiments in the world, he said, different flashes of problems that distract attention, we still, all together, do our utmost to have the world with us, with Ukraine. Words no longer enough, not in Avdivka, and certainly not in the West, where 60 billion dollars in missing aid now means Putin can slowly edge further and further west. Well, it's important to remind viewers just in how incredibly real this all is, far away from what Vice President Kamala Harris at the weekend called the political gamesmanship over that $60 billion worth of aid here in Kherson, the southern city that was liberated from the Russians last year. Uh, it's dark every single night, light discipline because of Russian drones and shelling, and shelling that has been quite intense tonight. We heard what sounded like automatic gunfire towards the river just in the last few minutes or so. Ukrainians deeply concerned that if Divka... Maybe one of many. You heard about Kubyansk there, where Zelensky was today, in the south, Robertine a village that was one rare gain of the summer counter-offensive. That's under Russian pressure. Talk of pressure near Bakhmut, the last major town that Russia took in May of last year. And two other points along the eastern front, too, also under Russian pressure. Deep concerns. We were beginning to see a slow change on the battlefield, a Russian resurgence in Ukraine. Finally, you heard there, less men more noise in the distance here, less men, definitely less ammunition, and definitely concerned that that Western aid that kept them strong since the invasion may be coming to an end, Wolf.
1: Nick Baton wallace reporting from the battlefield in Ukraine for us. Stay safe over there. Thank you very much. Right now, I want to bring in CNN military analyst, retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling. General Hurtling, thanks so much for joining us. Ukraine now lost this city after holding out for a decade since Russia's first invasion. Going back, just how significant general is this defeat and how much is the shortage of US military
7: aid to Ukraine to blame? Wolf, as Nick just said, there are multiple towns that are being pressured by Russian soldiers against Ukraine defenses, Vika, Marenka, Karmina, Bakhmut, others that, that Nick named. The Russians are attempting to put Ukraine on the defensive everywhere. They're attempting to mask preventing them from conducting the defense because they don't have the supplies and the manpower and the equipment they need. They are spreading the Ukrainian lines very thin. All except Robotyne, which is in the south uh, that Nick mentioned, are in the western uh, part of of the the offensive belt. If they can get through that area and they are pressing hard, uh, Dnipro, which is a major city in the the, uh, western part of Ukraine, excuse me, the eastern part of Ukraine, is going to be threatened. And that's what's so salacious about this.
1: Yeah, it's a serious situation. General, what's your message to House Republicans who are holding up more than $60 billion in potential Ukraine
7: funding? Well, truthfully, Wolf, it's a couple of things. Short term, they are causing the increased death of Ukrainian soldiers and citizens. They are contributing that. They are increasing the destruction of Ukrainian infrastructure. Uh, there is the continual holding of Ukrainian citizens and children as hostages in, Ru- in Russia while all this is going on. But it, as you said earlier in the show, it's an emboldening of Putin and Russian leaders. It has given Putin a second win. And if these funds are continued to be hold, uh, held by a Congress, it's going to contribute to a long-term increasing dangers to other countries in the Europe And it's going to cause increased U.S. defense spending eventually and potential conflict for U.S. soldiers. So, you know, this has been a conflict where Ukraine has upheld the the sovereignty and the freedoms of the West by fighting hard. We should not let them down right now. And I implore uh, the the Republicans in Congress to take a vote of which 70 percent or higher of American people support to stand, to continue to stand with Ukraine and get them the equipment and the, and the ammunition that they need.
1: They desperately need it right now. Retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, thanks so much for joining us. Right now, I want to get reaction from the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, Oksana Markarova. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us at this critically important moment. How much momentum does Putin now have with his big win in Avdiv- Avdivka?
22: Thank you, Wolf, for having me. Well, it's, uh, I wouldn't call it a win because they didn't take the city. They they just destroyed the city as they do with all of our towns and cities uh, during this horrible, aggressive, genocidal war. And it was wise decision for our commanders to save the personnel, of course. But uh, as, as uh, you rightfully said and uh, your correspondent on the ground, uh, if six, eight months ago we were at least around the parity with the artillery shells. Now the ratio is one to six at most. So um, look, you know, nothing changed. Ukrainian people are as motivated, our brave defenders are as brave, as we discussed with you in the studio previously a number of times, it's just a function of weapons. If we can have more weapons now, if we can double down on our efforts, not only we will we continue holding the lines, we will continue liberating the land and freeing those Ukrainians who suffer as we speak because they are tortured and killed everywhere. But um, you know, it is a pivotal moment and uh, we have to double down. We have to get more in order to be able to save lives. And frankly, not only for Ukraine, we have to be able to win. We cannot allow Putin to advance in Ukraine and advance in the minds of the people uh, in Russia and outside of Russia that autocracies are stronger than democracies. We should prove that we are stronger.
1: So, so Ambassador, what is your message to House Republicans right now who are, who are holding up more than $60 billion in new US military aid to your country? Do you blame them for these setbacks in Ukraine that we're seeing?
22: Well, there is only one here to blame. It's Putin and Russians who started this aggressive war 10 years ago, exactly today, and who restarted it two years ago. And my message uh, to all Americans, whether Republican or Democrat, well, first of all, thank you. Thank you for standing with us all this very difficult two years. And the second message is this is the time to stay the course. This is the time to double down. Look, everything you helped us with during the two years really worked we liberated 50% of the territories, we liberated the Black Sea, we are moving ahead in rebuilding Ukraine and we can do it together. When something works, you don't change it, you just do more of it. And it's time to actually provide us with more help which we use very transparently and very efficiently and which will bring peace closer and which will allow all of us to stop Putin while it's still in Ukraine and not to allow him to start and spread this war where Ukrainian, uh, not only Ukrainian but American soldiers will have to fight defending the NATO allies. We still are not asking the boots on the ground. We only ask for weapons and financial resources in order to fight an enemy who 70% of Americans consider either an enemy, Russian country or unfriendly country. So I, I, I know that American people support us we just have to start taking the decisions and and uh,
1: and win. It's a critically important moment right now. Ambassador Oksana Markarova, thanks as usual for joining us. Good luck to you. Good luck to all the people of Ukraine.
22: God bless you, Will.
1: Just ahead, new CNN reporting going inside the Biden campaign right now with new details on who is ramping up efforts to go from the shadows and into the spotlight. Stay with us. More information coming up right here in The Situation Room. Sources tell CNN Vice President Kamala Harris is carving out a new, more assertive role for herself, trying to pierce what some see as a bubble around the inner circle of President Biden's sluggish reelection campaign. CNN's Arlette signs is over at the White House. She's getting new information for us. Arlette, how does the vice president view this campaign?
4: Well, well, Vice President Kamala Harris is really taking a more active role as she is trying to determine why exactly at times the Biden campaign has struggled to break through with voters at a time when she and President Biden are trying to secure a second term in office. So she is doing this by holding a, a vast array of conversations across the political spectrum uh, that includes meetings on Air Force One and also meetings at the Naval Observatory. They're really being billed uh, by people who participated in them as listening sessions, giving the vice president an opportunity. From, to hear from folks uh, out in the country about why some of these issues haven't broken through. In one of those meetings, uh, she assembled a group of Democratic governors at the Naval Observatory uh, and heard their concerns when it came to messaging on abortion, the need to ramp up and turn up the heat on Republicans over their opposition to that bipartisan border bill, and also ways to try to attract younger voters to this campaign. But it's not just listening sessions that she's having. She's also having those campaign strategy sessions with top campaign officials, drilling down on the polling, drilling down on the messaging, really to try to set them up for better success heading into November. And it really comes as the vice president's role in the Biden White House has really stabilized after a bit of a rocky start in those early years. She has become uh, the the main leading voice when it comes to the push uh, to secure abortion rights in this country. And over the weekend, we saw her foreign policy chops on display as she was there assuring allies of the U.S. role in the world and the U.S. commitment to NATO at a time when former President Donald Trump uh, has instead indicated that he's siding with Putin, saying he'd encourage them uh, to do whatever they want to NATO countries who are not meeting their obligations. But really what this does, uh, this reporting has painted a a more vivid picture of the role that the vice president has uh, tried to take, trying to take a more active role in figuring out how they can break through as she this president are trying to secure that second term in office.
1: So important. Arlette Saenz reporting for us. The White House, thank you very much. Arlette, let's dig deeper right now with our CNN political commentators, Ashley Allison and S.E. Cup. Ashley, you worked on the Biden-Harris 2020 campaign. Do you believe the White House is using the Vice President Kamala Harris effectively right now? Is this the right approach?
12: I think the best use of the vice president is to get her out and talking to voters, which they are doing and have been doing in an official capacity for the last year or so. I remember when the vice president was named on the ticket and from that moment through Election Day, I was charged with meeting with her regularly to do exactly what Arlette was describing. What's the polling saying? Where are voters? Where are black men? Where are black women? Where are young people? Where's the Asian community? The whole coalition necessary to win, the vice president is uniquely positioned to speak to those uh, communities. And so getting her out, talking about the issues that voters matter the most is the, is one of the most effective ways to use them. And I am glad to see the campaign is really leaning into that, um, that effort right now.
1: Yeah, we're gonna be seeing a lot more of her and hearing a lot more of her in the coming days and weeks, no doubt about that. Essie, uh, the vice president, Vice President Harris, her polls are slightly worse than Biden. So is a more assertive role for her in this campaign actually a positive?
20: I actually think, yeah, anything can help. And look, there, are, we all know the stages of grief, right? It starts with denial. I think the Democrats inside Biden world were in denial for a bit about how much trouble his campaign was in. And I think finally they're in the acceptance phase after some anger and and bargaining, they're in the acceptance phase and finally addressing these insufficiencies with their own voters, with their own messaging on their own issues like abortion. Now I think that's good news. I think that's really encouraging and I think Kamala Harris can absolutely speak effectively to those groups and on those issues. The question is whether it's a little too late I mean, we're a month out from Super Tuesday. It's a little late to be reinventing and tinkering and going on a listening tour for an incumbent who should be really coming from a place of strength and not a place of panic.
1: Ashley, uh, CNN's uh, Edward Isaac Dovere reports on a meeting that Vice President Harris hosted with six Democratic governors. He writes this, and I'm quoting him now, what they are seeing in Biden's campaign, they told Harris, does not look Like the path to victory and they were eager to see changes okay said harris after listening to an hour of deconstruction what do you think should be done here's the question does the white house need to hear this message as well do you think they will listen
12: i think they have to listen and i think that people Without throughout the country, governors, mayors, and voters should continue to express what they want to see from this administration. And the administration should continue to talk about what they have already done. I think the, the question often is, well, what's the message? And the message is only as good as the many people as it can actually hear it. So having these conversations with people who are leading cities, leading states, leaders in their community, having this dialogue is really important because hopefully they curate a message that is great and strong and resonating with, with the voters. And then it's the responsibility for those governors, those mayors, those community leaders to be surrogates for the campaign and for the administration and go out and, and explain to voters what they have done. It is a ongoing dialogue. I know that it's Super Tuesday is just around the corner, but the Democrats actually are not in a real primary season. So I think this is enough time to get the, the message back on track and really begin to engage with voters. And when necessary, tinker with it a little bit. This is a very dynamic election cycle, and so we can't stay static regardless um, of what poll numbers are saying.
1: What do you think, Jesse?
20: Well, I think Ashley is really, really onto something that these surrogates need to start coming out. Where Where's Elizabeth Warren? Where's Bernie Sanders? Where where's Nancy Pelosi where are the stars of the democratic party going out into their communities going out into you know national spotlights and bragging about all the things that they think biden has done really well i mean there's a big tent over on you know the left i'm i'm jealous uh, believe me for my position on the right of you know the, the the deep bench and all the stars in the constellation of of the democratic party and they're just not being used the 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 biden campaign campaign feels very insular and again that felt a little bit like denialism at first but you know we're we're in the swing of the campaign now it's time to get everybody out and singing his praises
1: we shall see uh, essie cup and ashley allison to both of you thank you very much up next the clock is ticking for donald trump to appeal the latest court decision against him we'll go through his options for trying to get out of that huge 355 billion dollar penalty he's now facing Former President Trump and his legal team are looking to appeal his latest $355 billion legal blow in the New York civil fraud trial. This as Trump waits for the U.S. Supreme Court's review of his claim that he has absolute immunity for prosecution. Let's bring in CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. Ellie, what comes next for the former president after this massive judgment against him? Well, Wolf, the
23: first thing that Donald Trump has to do is post a bond. Now, that does not mean that he has to post the full amount, $350 million plus in cash. Usually a bond is either worked out between the parties or the judge will order it. There typically will be some cash component but you can usually secure the rest of it by posting a deed to property or other values like that. Once Donald Trump posts the bond, he can then appeal. He has a right to appeal to the mid-level New York State Appeals Court. And then if he loses there, he can try to get it up to the highest level New York Appeals Court, but they don't have to take the case. But one thing to know, when this appeals process is all over, whatever dollar amount comes out of this, that is not optional, that is not negotiable. Donald Trump will have to pay that.
1: When do you expect Trump will file his appeal And how likely is that uh, that this decision will be reversed or even reduced?
23: So he has 30 days to file the appeal. Of course he has to get the bond in place first. I think his chances of succeeding on appeal are low because a party that loses a lawsuit like this does not win on appeal by saying, well, the judge should have ruled in our favor. The judge should have credited my evidence, my witnesses. What you have to show is some sort of procedural or structural or constitutional error. And to that end, Wolf, if you look at the judge's ruling, he really sort of appeal proofs it. He says that much of what he's doing is based on his own assessment of the credibility of the witnesses, of the strength of the evidence. And it's really hard to overturn a verdict on that basis.
1: We're awaiting, as you know, Ellie, two very important decisions from the U.S. Supreme Court. First, we could hear from the court at any time and whether they will take up Trump's immunity argument. What are the stakes with that?
23: Yeah, the stakes are enormous here. This goes to Jack Smith's federal prosecution in Washington, D.C. Two things. First of all, If the court takes this, it will be one of the most important decisions they've rendered. It goes to constitutional powers of the presidency, executive powers, separation powers. And on a practical level, Wolf, if the Supreme Court declines to take this case, it'll go back to the trial court. And I think we are very likely looking at a trial date, late spring or early summer. But if the Supreme Court takes this case, Wolf, that's going to add several months onto the timeline and gives us a real possibility that this case will not be able to be tried before the election.
1: And the uh, Supreme Court uh, justices could announce their decision on the Trump Colorado ballot case as early as this week. Uh, What are you looking for there?
23: Yeah, I don't think there's too much mystery left in which way this one's going to go, having listened to those arguments a couple weeks ago. I think it's very likely the Supreme Court reverses Colorado and puts Donald Trump back on the ballot. And timing wise, we never know when the Supreme Court's going to act. But we have a pretty good hint here because Colorado is slated to vote on Super Tuesday, March 5th. And I think the Supreme Court has to be aware of that and has to understand that the voters of Colorado need to know before then whether he is disqualified or not. So I do look for a ruling some point in the next couple weeks. We are all on high alert for both of these cases.
1: We certainly are. Very quickly, I want to get to the Georgia election subversion case. Ellie, a judge is now deciding whether to remove district attorney. Attorney Fani Willis from the case. What do you expect to happen here?
23: Well, Wolf, I think there's been a lot of questionable ethical conduct by Fonnie Willis uh, throughout this case, even before this whole scandal came up. But I don't know that I saw the defendants, the people challenging Fonnie Willis, show the sort of specific financial conflict of interest they would need to show in order to justify her disqualification. Important to know, though, there are proceedings happening this week. Some of them will be behind closed doors. So we're not going to have all the information. I think it's possible Fonnie Willis gets removed based on a conflict of interest but I would be surprised if that's the outcome.
1: We will see soon enough. Uh, Eli Honig, thank you very much. Coming up, victims of an Israeli airstrike are rushed to a hospital in central Gaza, many of them children. We're gonna show you the deadly aftermath. All right, just into CNN. The United States has proposed a United Nations Security Council draft resolution calling for a temporary ceasefire in Israel's war against Hamas and warning against an Israeli ground incursion into Rafah. This, as Palestinian health officials say, at least 18 people were killed in an Israeli airstrike in central Gaza, most of them children. CNN's Jeremy Diamond has the story for us. We want to warn our viewers, this report contains disturbing images. One
11: after another, after another, after another. The victims of the latest Israeli airstrike flood into this hospital in central Gaza. They are mostly children. Some of them still clinging to life, others bloodied and limp. Without a pulse, the life gone from their eyes. Here children comfort children, even as they are still trembling from the shock.
13: I was on the rooftop and suddenly I heard an explosion. I flew away and fell down. My back hurts. I saw smoke and stones falling. Then I heard people screaming.
11: A hospital spokesman said at least 18 people were killed and dozens of others injured Sunday in an Israeli airstrike on a home in Dar el The Israeli military did not respond to a request for comment about the strike. Witnesses say many of the victims had just arrived from Rafah. Gaza's southernmost city where fear and confusion have set in as Israel threatens a coming military offensive. But central Gaza is no haven, a reality revealed in the cruelest of ways. I can't speak. Innocent children were asleep. They killed them all. They didn't leave a child alive. In the ruins of the Al Baraka family home, the target of Sunday's airstrike, the desperate search for survivors is underway. As one man dives into the rubble, another shouts, get out of there, you'll die down there.
2: We could only pull two alive from under the rubble, and the rest are all missing. We don't see safety in a mosque, or in an onerous school, or in a hospital. The word safety is not something that exists anymore. They evacuated us from place to place, claiming it's safe. There is nowhere safe. Shouts praising
11: God rise as a girl is pulled from the rubble. But her body is lifeless, added to the list of more than 12,000 children killed in Gaza. Bystanders try and cover her body, but the man carrying her throws the blanket off. He wants the world to see what this war has wrought. Jeremy Diamond, CNN. Tel Aviv.
1: Thanks to Jeremy Diamond for that report. Coming up, a suspect now in custody following a brutal crime on a major college campus. Why, what happened inside a Colorado dorm is being investigated now as a double homicide. Police in Colorado Springs say a suspect has been arrested in connection with the shooting deaths of two people at a college dorm. CNN's Lucy Cavanaugh is joining us live from Denver right now. Lucy, what do we know about the suspect and the investigation into why this happened?
5: Well, no word yet on the why, wolf the motive, but the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, confirming to CNN that the suspect was in fact a fellow student. Now, police identified him as 25-year-old Nicholas Jordan. He's originally from Detroit, Michigan. He was studying in Colorado Springs. They believe that he was responsible for that Friday's deadly shooting that killed two people, a young man and a young woman, inside that dorm room on campus. Now, police also say that he was arrested shortly after being found in a vehicle earlier this morning. He was taken into custody, they say, without any incident. Uh, Authorities also believe that the suspect and these victims knew each other. In fact, the Colorado Springs Police Department said it was, quote, not a random attack against the school or other students at the university. Now, they did not, Wolf, go into how they were able to identify him so quickly, but they did say that they obtained an arrest warrant against him uh, on two counts of first-degree murder on Friday evening, the same day that the shooting happened, which means that he was effectively on the loose for two days. Uh, Authorities were, were asked at a press conference today why they didn't share that information earlier, why they allowed him to be on the loose for so long. Here's the Colorado Springs police chief. Take a listen. I have to really balance what what we provide to the community with public inter- interest and public,
8: public trust and the safety of the public. And I fully understand that, but the investigation has to be able to move forward. And, and our goal is, while well, ensuring that public safety
5: And let's get to the victims, Wolf. Both were found deceased when authorities arrived on the scene Friday morning. The woman identified as 26-year-old Celie Rain Montgomery of Pueblo, Colorado. The man, 24-year-old Sam Knopp of Parker, Colorado, a student, a beloved student, a musician, both now dead in this tragedy, Wolf.
1: Lucy Kavanaugh reporting for us. Lucy, thank you very much. The news continues next, right here at CNN.